ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Do recently diverged species pairs show the creative power of Darwinian evolution? Hello and welcome to ID the Future. I'm Casey Luskin, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Gunter Beckley, a senior fellow at Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. He's also a paleoentomologist who specializes in the fossil history and systematics of insects, especially dragonflies. Dr. Beckley earned his PhD in geosciences from Eberhard Karls University in Tübingen, Germany, and he also served as curator for amber and fossil insects in the Department of Paleontology at the State Museum of Natural History in Stuttgart, Germany. And also, Gunter is one of my favorite people to talk to. You're always enjoyable to interact with Gunter, and we appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Nice to see you again. So, Gunter, this podcast today is based upon a post that you recently put up on Evolution News titled Species Pairs, a New Challenge to Darwinists. And it's a very interesting argument, and I think it's a convincing and a compelling one. I know you've also developed this argument elsewhere in some of your technical writings, and I think it's something worth talking about. It's attracting a lot of attention. So first off, could you just sort of outline for us, what is this argument of how species pairs and how much these recently diverged species have diverged morphologically? Why is that a challenge to the creative power of Darwinian evolution? Sure. So uh, this whole argument, I, I came across this problem by working on the so-called waiting time problem. And uh, as you know, this is the problem to accommodate the necessary genetic changes for major transitions in the history of life. And so, uh, of course, I, I looked at a lot of these abrupt appearances in the history of life. And uh, you find this, for example, in the Cambrian explosion, of course, where you have the sudden appearance of the animal body plants and, and a striking example is trilobites that appear 537 million years ago, established by trace fossil record. And uh, even mainstream scientists acknowledge that 550 million years ago, there were no animals. So you have just 30 million years available to develop this arthropod body plan with all these organs with compound eyes and central nervous system and gut system and exoskeleton and articulated legs and so on from a kind of jelly blob warm like putative ancestor in the lifespan of just one or two species and this, the same phenomenon uh, occurs over and over in the history of life again the example i'm currently working on is whale origins where you have a transition from uh, quadrupedal terrestrial assumed ancestors that look basically like wild boars like pigs to fully marine dolphin-like animals within just four and a half million years, which is the lifespan of a single larger mammal species. Or the same phenomenon again in the original feathers from this dinosaur scale, hair-like structures in very, very short time. So I often in public talks try to make the point that these appearances, even if they happened in, let's say, five million years windows of time, which may sound a lot to laymen that this is actually abrupt because this is just the lifespan of a single species available to make this transition, which does not mean that there couldn't be several speciation events during this lifespan of the species, but it gives a kind of illustration how short in biological terms this, this window of time is. And then I thought, well, that would open the possibility to compare what happened 
in uh, the same window of time uh, with recent species that have uh, separated, diverged in the same time frame uh, established by molecular clock studies. And uh, there are very good databases where you can check this. So the, the most famous database for this is TimeTree.org, and there you can just enter whatever uh, organisms you would like to explore and can compare two organisms, and it shows you based on thousands and thousands of molecular clock studies when they diverge. And so I try to find any example among recent species where you can select two species that have diverged, let's say, five million years ago, and that exhibit a similar disparity in body plans, like, for example, the quadrupedal whale ancestor to the marine whales. And I didn't find any example. <laughs> I looked in all groups of organisms, whether it's plants or invertebrates and vertebrates. Um, uh, no examples anywhere. Uh, in most of the cases, when you have the same window of time, the organisms are almost indistinguishable for laymen. So we, you have two warbler species, which hardly have any difference in the shape of their little pale eye stripe or something, and they have been separated five million years ago or something like that. So uh, I put out a kind of challenge to Darwinists and said, well, uh, this is strange because why should this process that allegedly is responsible for evolution in the history of life and uh, was so creative that it could bring about these body plan transitions in these short windows of time in the past, all over Earth history, in all groups of organisms over and over again, why should this be totally absent in the recent flora and fauna? especially given the fact that we just have about 350,000 fossil species described and find many examples. And we have about estimated 8.7 million living species, and we find no example for something like this. Why is this? So what could explain this? And yeah, we will see if this challenge can be met. I don't think so, because, of course, I looked a little bit into this thing before I put out the challenge. And if we look what could explain this, uh, then, of course, if we think in terms of design, then a intelligent agent can deliberately stop to infuse uh, information into the system whenever the agent wants. And the point that I made in the article, of course, uh, goes beyond the mere design argument is that especially if we look at the Judeo-Christian tradition and, and the biblical view, then there is a perfect explanation why this creative infusion of information stopped, because there was a kind of teleological end goal of the whole process, which is human beings. And human beings are now around something like five to six million years. And since then the, the process stopped, as it is said in, in Genesis, that God rested the seventh day when man was made. So that is the argument in a nutshell and the challenge I put out, and uh, we will see what happened. That's a really interesting argument, Gunter. It's basically saying that if you're going to claim that species can diverge hugely in very short periods of time, short geologically speaking, then why is it that we have so many examples of species that diverged recently where they are highly similar? And doesn't this challenge claims that species can diverge to a very large degree very rapidly? You bring out a number of examples of species which you think have diverged recently, and yet they are morphologically very similar to each other. There's a lot of different types of organisms out there. So could we maybe go over some of these examples that you give? For example, you look at a particular subfamily of conifer trees, 
firs and cedars. So how long ago did they diverge as far as, you know, separating their lineages? And what is their morphological difference? Yeah. So if we look at the, this example, and that is actually among the many examples that I made, the one that has the longest time of separation, they have separated according to multiple molecular clock studies about 141 million years ago. So that would be in the, the uh, late Jurassic, early Cretaceous in, uh, in, in this transition time. And that's just to give a comparison to the, the whale example, 30 times the time that was available to transform a pig-like animal into a dolphin-like animal. And if you look at a fir tree and a cedar tree, then of course there are subtle differences in the shape of the needles and the shape of the, the cones and so on. But basically they have the same body plan. There are no big body plan differences that developed into, in these 30 million years. But an example like this, if you look at it in isolation, of course, could be a kind of, of fluke and, and uh, wouldn't say a lot, but uh, the same pattern repeats over and over again, even if you make the separation time, the divergence time much, much shorter and go down to separation times of 20 million years, of 10 million years, of 5 million years, you find always very, very similar organisms that most laymen would be hard-pressed to distinguish. So if you want to, I can mention some more of the examples that I mentioned. Yeah, let's talk about the houseflies. That's a really interesting example. Yeah, the houseflies, I'm pretty sure that that 99% uh, of non-entomologists would not be able to distinguish them. They look basically identical. And... Maybe you would think, well, they probably separated just two or three million years ago, but actually even these highly similar insects separated 40, 80 million years ago. So that's still 10 times the time available for the whale transition. And you have basically not only the same body plan, but even on minor details, uh, very similar looking animals. So it didn't work in this example either. And it's, it's true in, in many other insect groups as well. And, and of course, in other animals uh, also, wherever you look. So Gunter, I want to play the devil's advocate a little bit here. I think you've brought out a really good argument. I think that when you look at the data to go with what the data says, right. at the same time, though, Darwinian evolution is so plastic. There's so many places you can go with it. You can basically argue from any angle you want. So, so for example, couldn't we argue, well, maybe these two uh, housefly species just experience the same selection pressures? Yeah, definitely, yes. So the, the obvious answer that many uh, evolutionists would make is that they say, well, uh, you have this kind of stabilizing selection and that the, the niches to which these organisms were adapted didn't change, which, of course, if you have these longer times available, uh, 48 million years means there is a lot of climate change going on in this time, much bigger than anything that is expected until 2100. So we have the, the large Eocene uh, climatic optimum in this time where we had uh, 10 degrees or more a global average, higher temperatures and so on, totally different ecosystem. Europe was tropical with tropical rainforests and so on. So uh, I think this argument that there uh, were no changes in the ecosystem is first not plausible, but it would also, even if you could make the case in isolated examples, it would not be plausible if among 8 million recent species you find no example. <laughs> there, there should at least be some species pairs that were not affected by stabilizing selection, and uh, otherwise you have the problem 
uh, why uh, do we find among fewer fossil species this frequently and among recent not what what changed really in in average uh, behavior of ecosystems related to climate or interspecies interactions between our time horizon and the time horizon in the Miocene or in the Eocene or in the Cretaceous or in the Triassic and so on. So uh, I think this argument can be made for isolated cases, but certainly not as general attempt to explain away this pattern that you find across all different groups of, of organisms. So uh, no, I, I think that that wouldn't be a reasonable attempt to, to uh, get rid of this problem. Okay, well, let, let me put a new twist on it then, because with Darwinian evolution, you can you can tell whatever story you want. Okay, so let me sure. let me tell you a story here. So you're a dragonfly expert. The next example you give is the similarities between the northern damselfly and the azure damselfly. Right. And I can't tell the difference between the two of these looking at them in the pictures. I'm sure you can, because this is your area of expertise. But let me tell you a story. Okay, you say that they diverged 11.8 million years ago. What you don't understand, Gunter, is that, yes, these two damselflies, initially when they diverged, they were very similar. But in the intervening 11.8 million years, you have to understand the northern damselfly, it evolved hugely. I mean, it basically diverged. So it turned into a three-eyed flying purple people eater. Okay. And then it evolved back through convergent evolution, through, you know, convergent selection pressures. It evolved back to the original morphology that it had originally when it diverged from the Azure damselfly. So how do we know that there hasn't been extreme morphological evolution in these species and conversion evolution just brought them right back home to the same place in the in the recent? Right, right. In, interesting argument. Actually, I, I didn't think about this, but uh, uh, there's two obvious answers to this. The one would be more uh, epistemological that uh, this would be a totally ad hoc a hypothesis without a shred of evidence for it. But even if you would, let's say, allow for the possibility, there would be an easy uh, way to test it. And that is if the similarity would just be based on kind of convergent evolution, then you shouldn't expect a high degree of genetic similarity. Then the, this should be just superficial similarity, but you should expect some kind of genetic disparity similar to, let's say, a, a marsupial wolf, uh, a tulacine, and a real wolf. But that's not the case. If you look at the molecular studies, they are also on the molecular level as similar as they are on the phenotypical level, and that would refute this possible argument. That sounds very fair. I'll be a reasonable evolutionist and say, you've, you've made a good argument in response to me. <laughs> so um, what about vertebrates? What about tetrapods? You raise examples from amphibians, from reptiles, from birds. Can you talk about some of those examples? Yeah, sure. So if we look at the amphibians, I look, for example, at frog species from Europe, because that's animals I, I know and I encounter when I do some hiking. And uh, there's the European common frog and the moor frog. And they look very much similar, even to the color pattern with this dark spot behind the eyes. And so in the field, I, I would need a field guide to say, even as a biologist, which is which. With the only exception in the moor frog, you have a second color variant, which can be bluish. Then, of course, you know you have a moor frog, but in the brownish color variant, you don't see a difference. And if you look at the molecular clock data, they diverged 21 million years, 21.4 million years ago. So that's, again, four times the time available to make a pig-like animal into a dolphin-like animal. 
And also with other tetrapods, I look, for example, at iguanas. Uh, there's on Galapagos Island, which is a nice example because that's where a lot of the uh, development of evolutionary theory uh, happened. And if you compare the land iguana with the marine iguana, uh, which are different uh, genera, but they look quite similar. If you if you look at the photos of these uh, animals, they have diverged 18 million years ago. So they also had a lot more time to develop differences. There are a few differences. This marine iguana has developed a special gland at the nostrils to, to get rid of the uh, salt from the marine water when it dives in, in the ocean and feeds on marine algae. And it has a little bit more flattened tail to better allow swimming, which of course the terrestrial iguana doesn't need, but otherwise they, they look also almost identical. And even more, you find the phenomenon in birds. And birds are probably, because there are so many bird lovers and so many ornithologists, are the best studied groups apart from butterflies, maybe, in terms of speciation, mechanisms of speciation and species distinctions and so on. And uh, if you look at, let's say, the average pattern of bird species that have diverged some million years ago, so let's say between 4 and 15 million years ago, you find generally the pattern that they look identical. So uh, I uh, in the article show two warbler species, the green warbler and the Bonelli's warbler, no difference to be, to, to, to be recognized by, by a non-specialist or uh, a little bit more well-known probably the, the house sparrow and the tree sparrow, apart from a tiny difference in the, the coloration with a black spot on the, the side of the head in one and not the other, they look almost identical and they separated about 10 million years ago. So the only exception, and uh, I didn't discuss this in the article, but I will discuss this more in a follow-up article that addresses some possible claims uh, of, of groups that could meet the challenge, would be, for example, birds that made island radiation. And one example would be the Hawaiian honey creepers. They are finches that according to most dating have colonized the Hawaiian islands about 5.7 million years ago. And there are many species, unfortunately, some of them already extinct or critically endangered. And they are quite different, actually. So they have very different plumage, uh, very, very different coloration. Some are green, some are bright red. Uh, some have a uh, beak that is like a usual finch beak, which is stout and thick and short, and others have a very long, very thin curved beak. Uh, so you might think, well, that could be a possible contender to, to meet this challenge. But the problem is that all these kinds of characters that relate to size, shape, coloration behavior are characters where we know that the genetic basis is usually very simple genetic switches. So for example, in the case of the bird beaks, there have been studies that have shown that there are just two genes where you only need point mutations to make the beak longer and thinner or shorter and thicker, uh, which has been used also to explain this radiation of the Darwin finches on the Galapagos Islands. And of course, the same would also apply on the honey creepers and the same with coloration. So these are not with any stretch of imagination differences in body plan. These are simple 
allometric characters, quantitative characters where uh, something gets longer, thicker, you get more of some stuff that is already there, or simple genetic switches that are turned on and off, but not uh, body plan changes would be something to really define it in a way that you could say, well, to make the challenge fair, you could should give a real definition. What do you mean by body plan? What qualifies as a different body plan? I would say a different body plan involves new proteins, new tissues, new organs. So in the whale example, if you have something like the origin of this countercurrent heat exchange system, that is uh, something that requires new body plan. Or in the arthropod example, uh, when you have to develop compound eyes and a central nervous system and an exoskeleton, that is a body plan change. Just changing the color or the length of the beak, that's not a body plan change. So th that would qualify the, the challenge a little bit to make it easier for our Darwinist friends to, to look if they can find something that could possibly meet the criteria. Gunther, we're going a little bit long for this first podcast. This has been a fascinating discussion. I'd like to talk about more examples of morphological divergence that really is very minor and small in comparison to the period of time since these species evolved. So could we have you back on for a second podcast talking about this topic? Sure. Okay, well, thank you so much. I'm Casey Luskin with ID of the Future. Stay tuned for more with Dr. Gunter Beckley talking about how there is limited divergence among organisms, even those that maybe have diverged millions of years ago. We don't see them evolving into radically new forms. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.